1: not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
2: PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865.
1: Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year
1: Hey, this is Annie and Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You a production of iHeartRadio. <music> Samantha, were you did you ever get into drawing? Did you ever want to be someone who could draw? I did.
2: I really wanted to be an artist of sorts. I felt like if I could just do something amazing so i used to do all of my pictures of people would always be of their profile Uh because i felt like at least if i had the nose already on there then i could do everything else but yeah they were a big bubble face it was really sad (laughs) uh so i had a lot of bubble face drawings uh and then i was able to draw penguins i was very proud of that so i was like oh i can draw a penguin That's about the extent of it. I can't draw stick figures really well either. Like it should be easy, but it's not for me. Nothing connects. Uh I don't know why. Uh, Whenever we play any type of like win, lose, or draw or, you know, guessing games on those routes, people don't want me on their team. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. I do know why, but I was never good
1: at it. I really wish I had the talent. What about you? Oh. Well, first of all, I forgot about the the drawing games on the phone. Mm-hmm. That was at that early stage of the pandemic when everyone was like, "Oh right, yes, right." We shall do whatever we need to to keep up these connections. I'm curious about the penguins. Was that a choice that you made, or was that just something you discovered? So I'm not really sure
2: why we started drawing penguins, but it became like where we use them as kind of puns. So, Mm. but it wasn't necessarily about the penguins. It would be about movie titles. So, uh, the one I distinctly remember so, a good friend of mine who actually is the older sister of Kristen Conger of Mm Smenti, that's how I met all of them. Honestly, Anna and I used to just draw random like penguins and then make little jokes out of them. And my favorite one, which she did, was Splenda. In the grass, so it would be a penguin holding a Splenda in tall grass. <laughs> One of my favorite movies growing up was Splendor in the grass, which is mm-hmm. really, really sad and ridiculous. But yeah, so we would do things like that. And then we would <laughs> just pass them around to each other. I don't know why, but... And it was always penguins holding something.
1: Uh-huh. I love that. Yeah. That's fantastic. Do you have them any any of them in I still? think they're gone.
2: Oh, I know. I'm very sad about this. I can distinctly remember hers was much better than mine too, by the way. Way better. Mm-hmm. Mine would just yeah. be a penguin who's like, would wear a hat or something.
1: <laughs> Still. <laughs> I love drawing and coloring. As you have seen as an adult, Samantha, I, if the table mat at a restaurant yes. has the crowns and like the canvas, then forget the food. That's what I'm doing. And uh, I still, like, there's a restaurant I went to a couple years ago where it's kind of hard to get your picture on the wall, and I got my picture on the wall, and I took a picture of it as if I'd won some great award. like <laughs> A picture that you color on the wall. But I was never very good at it either. I think I've said before the lowest grade I've ever gotten was in art. But both of my friends were really good at it, so I was desperate. I kept trying and trying and trying, and I would illustrate all the stuff I would write, I would put in like little boxes and the pictures were terrible. They were so bad. <laughs> I could trace things, though. I was good at tracing. Yeah. I guess that's not so great overall, but... <laughs> Better than what I can do, then. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that's the case. <laughs> mm. I have been drawing a lot for D&D, for Dungeons & Dragons. Nice. I draw the maps. And uh, we recently played Dungeons & Dragons for the first time in person since... This particular campaign started, and I got out my very silly, childishly drawn maps, and they acted as if I was, like, presenting them the Declaration of Independence. They were so <laughs> excited. They were like, is this the real thing? I'm like, yes. <laughs> I like you compared
2: it to the Declaration of Independence. That's amazing. <laughs> they, like, gas aloud,
1: Samantha. <laughs> well... For this edition of Book Club, we are talking about a graphic novel, which is why this was on my mind. Um, And because it is Pride Month, we wanted to talk about Fun Home, a family tragicomic written by American cartoonist Alison Bechdel in 2006. And yes, that Bechdel of Mm -hmm. the Bechdel test. Mm -hmm. She also wrote the comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For, Are You My Mother, a comic drama, and a memoir published in 2021 called The Secret to Superhuman Strength. I think it just came out in May, so very Mm -hmm. recent. In 2013, uh, Fun Home was adapted for the stage by playwright Lisa Kron and composer Janine Tessori. And the play went on to win several Tony Awards. Mm-hmm. Fun Home is an autobiographical look at Bechdel's complicated relationship with her father growing up in rural Pennsylvania at the Fun Home, the funeral home her dad runs. But I guess it also functions for the house that they actually live in, which was sort of this Victorian museum. right? Which we'll talk about more a bit later. After her father's death, possibly by suicide, she wrestled with understanding her father, his choices, and the things he kept from her, and how that interacts with her own. Coming Out and Understanding of Gender Identities, Sexual Orientation, and Gender Roles. The book also delves into family dysfunction and emotional abuse, suicide, coming of age, literature, and how that can be a tool for understanding ourselves and each other, and sexual orientation and attitudes around it and how they've changed or haven't over the years. It's beautifully illustrated and draws you into the world. It's often called a graphic novel for word lovers. A lot of the uh, reviews will say, like, it made me go to the dictionary more than once, which, Mm -hmm. yes... Me too. It's told in a non-linear way with new memories being repeated and reexamined in light of new information.
2: Yeah, so uh, we definitely have to talk about the author. Bechtel was born in 1960 and started drawing as a child. At one time, during her childhood, she expressed interest in being a cartoonist. She started drawing characters that looked a lot like her out of college when she didn't see them anywhere. Some of her first jobs after college were boring jobs uh, she took so that she could draw. And this is where she created Dykes to Watch Out For, a humorous comic strip published from 1983 to 2008 that followed a group of radical lesbians partly inspired by Howard Cruz's Gay Comics, founded in the 1970s. It's from one of these strips that we get the famous Bechtel test and the idea she credits to her friend Liz Wallace, where, you know, I didn't read it out of the actual comic, but it is stated where she, the friend says, I will not go see this movie unless at least two female characters are talking to each other and it's not about a man. And so she talks about how the last film she saw was Alien. Right.
1: And I thought of you. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, it was funny reading about it because it's named after Bechdel. She's like, yeah, I don't really like movies. So <laughs> really yeah. more my friend. <laughs> she was just like, hey, I'll take it though. It's cool. Hey. So this book took Bechdel several years to create. I believe I read seven. She would photograph herself in the poses of the characters to use as reference when drawing over 4,000 photos in total. And you can see uh, side-by-side comparisons, and it's really amazing. Uh, I recommend looking it up. She also referenced real diary entries from her life. She was meticulous in documenting things and has discussed the failings of memory. And she even discusses that within the book. And this hammers home the fact that while this is a graphic novel, it is autobiographical with real life and real events and real loss and violence and pain behind it.
2: Right. In 2014, Bechtel was one of the 21st recipients chosen for the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant in part for, quote, changing our notions of contemporary memoir and expanding the expressive potential of the graphic form. And she's appeared in an episode of The Simpsons in which is the episode where Lisa writes her own graphic novel autobiography called Sad Girl with Illustrations by Marge. And they appear together on a comic panel with several other famous cartoonists as well. So that's really fun. It was definitely targeted by many censorship and banning efforts with some labeling as pornography because it contained oral sex between two women and a woman masturbating. Four pages of the 240-page book, by the way. And it still was like, huh, really? This is pornography? I guess it could be. (laughs) It was even censored and banned at the college level. So that says a lot during our time period, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, and that made national headlines. Mm-hmm. So you can read all about what happened there because it, it caught... <laughs> Which is kind of ironic because she talks about censorship yeah.
2: in the graphic novel. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I mean, a lot of people rightfully pointed out to say it's pornography when it's so few, like four pages out of two two 240 or whatever... I mean, that's like saying a movie is pornographic for having one sex scene in it in the whole movie. Like, it's just disingenuous. Right. And incorrect. A few years ago in 2017, Bechdel returned to her small hometown to see a production of the play. She said... It was super surreal. It was the same theater where my mother would do her amateur dramatics and my father was on the board. I was a little afraid. I felt anxious, like, oh my God, I'm going to see all these people and they're going to be pissed off with me. Because there were people in my hometown who did not think fun home was a good thing. They thought it dishonored my family. There was this great warmth that I just hadn't expected. I had thought I was going back to 1977, but the place has changed. It has evolved. My parents, who had met in a play, would get to go on. Living in one. Right. I can't imagine.
2: Yeah, I do like how she mentions the fact that she was kind of glad her mother wasn't alive to see it because her mother did have a hard time with a book in general, mm-hmm. which I've thought about that. You know, you and I have talked about this. We talked about this with Nicole, the author who came and talked about her book. And when we were talking about what would our parents think? Is yep. it is it gonna dishonor them? Do are they gonna be hurt by this? And yeah, she talked about that fact that. She, her mother, I think, eventually accepted it, didn't love it, accepted mm-hmm. it, but that the uh, musical may have been too much for her. It would have to be... Yeah. The only way she could really
1: view it is if she was alone watching it. And yeah. I, I was like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I hate to harp on this point all the time, but coming from a small town, I cannot imagine going back to that small town right. and having a play about like me coming out and family drama... And having conservative small town Georgia watching it.
2: <laughs> right. As well as the fact that not the coming out was also kind of indicated some really unsavory things for mm-hmm. the town and especially with, from her family that you're like, oh, ooh. yeah. Oh, she's going to let it all out. Okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. But of course, even with all the controversy, as we talked about before, she has won many awards and accolades, including the f- book was listed as one of the top 10 best books of 2006 by Time magazine. It was also given the Eisner Award for the Best Reality Series Works in 2007, uh, but it also was part uh, given the award for Best Graphic Album as well. Um, and she was nominated as Best Writer and Artist. With the same award, she also won the Stonewall Book Awards uh, Israel Fishman Nonfiction Award in 2007. She was given the Guggenheim Fellowship in 2012, Inkpot Award in 2012 as well, the Bill Whitehead Award for Lifetime Achievement from Publishing Triangle in 2012. So many awards. She, again, won the MacArthur Fellowship in 2014, Lambda Board of Trustees Award for Excellence in Literature in 2014, the Erickson Institute Prize for Excellence in Mental Health and Media in 2015, and it goes on and on and on. I feel like we also haven't mentioned it yet, but about how she addresses the mental health stuff that she had to go through with mm. her compulsiveness and her fears and anxiety that kind of came out because... Partially from her family mm-hmm. and her uh, trying to figure out her own identity, but it was really interesting as she talks about it, especially when she talks about writing
1: mm-hmm.
2: and and doing the diary and journaling and how like that became compulsive for her, but
1: mm-hmm. also
2: a release. It was a very interesting dynamic to see as well.
1: Yeah, and she's been very very outspoken about uh, therapy, <laughs> a strong proponent of of therapy. So the plot is primarily an examination of Bechdel's father, Bruce, a closeted gay man, and her own coming out as a lesbian and the relationship that the two of them had, the very, very complicated relationship. After going to college and realizing her own sexual orientation, Bechdel sends a letter home to her parents about it, and this is when she learns from her mother that her father had affairs with several men, including a few who were underaged. With this revelation, both Allison and her dad struggle to come to terms with how repressing his sexual orientation may have impacted both of them. Her father died a few months later after her letter and also two weeks after her mother, Bechtel's mother, filed for divorce from him.
2: While Allison and her father are the primary characters, her mother and brothers are consistently present along with her first girlfriend, Joan, as is the house they live in itself, an elaborate, meticulous 19th century home styled by her father but maintained by her mother, a home that her father more openly cares for than his family and all the beautiful, ornate objects in it. And I do love Mm -hmm. the beginning comparison that she has of it with the Adams family. Yeah, it was such a great beginning. I was like, okay, I see exactly what you're saying. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It has an outward appearance of perfection that he projects, only possible with the help and pain of others. So they're constantly having to rearrange and dust the funeral home he inherited after his own father's death. He and his wife, Helen, who had been living in Europe before that, had to return to Pennsylvania once his father had died. The death of passion and hope and dreams, the thought of escaping the past of a new life, it kind of just all disappeared.
1: Yeah, yeah. So they were, Helen and Bruce were off in Europe and there was all this like happiness in front of them and then Bruce's father died after return home and it did kind of represent like his father's death, but also, yes, he's inheriting this funeral home, and all those dreams they had in Europe are kind of like gone. Yeah, <laughs> fizzled out.
2: Yeah. And I do love Bechtel's drawings of the comparison of her mom before and after. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, oh, that's too, real. It's too <laughs> real. It is real for her and
1: her family. He was
2: like, yeah, it, I think true. that resonates everywhere.
1: and art is almost a character in this book too something that moves all of the human characters Allison's parents met at a play Bruce takes refuge in literature and house design Helen and music and one of the few ways that Allison can connect to her emotionally abusive father is through literature it is constant throughout at first he is the one doing most of the recommending to Allison and he's pretty like fierce about his opinions. Mm-hmm. But after Allison goes to college, she recommends some books to him, almost as a way to open the door to them talking about her coming out as a lesbian and her father's closeted homosexuality or bisexuality, I uh, don't know for sure, trying to bond over their shared yeah, queerness. Also, just want to throw in here, uh, there was 17 years cicadas. Right. Nixon Watergate was happening. And I was like, wow, time really is a flat circle. It really is <laughs> just cyclical, laugh. isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we have so many themes we want to go over. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
2: This episode is brought to you by Snagajob.
1: Thank you, sponsor. So, one of the themes we wanted to start out with, which is probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, throughout, is Allison's relationship with her father, which was fraught with, yes, emotional abuse and miscommunication. And a lot of her thoughts on this came out after her father's death. And and her kind of reexamining a lot of memories Mm -hmm which i think is one of the most interesting parts of this book is that like you see one me- a memory presented and then she gets new information like oh your father had affairs with young men and it recontextualizes memories right that she has she understands them differently right but as something that we've talked about a lot on this show is we we get to see her processing through the grief over his death in ways that are quote unquote not normal. Right. So, for one, she gets really angry when I can't remember if it's the priest or the person presiding over the uh, funeral, like pats her shoulder and she wants to like rip his arm away. She throws like their flags put on his grave at one point when she comes to visit, she throws them away. Little flags. And then uh, when someone asks her about it, like, how are you? And she's like, oh, my dad died. And she says it really upbeat, is kind of right. laughing. And he's like, oh, that's funny. That's weird. And she's like, no, he actually did. And she starts laughing. And that's just how she reacts to it. But it does, I mean, it is presented in a way, even through the literature she cites through it, where it's absurdist almost. His death is kind of absurdist, especially. When she was raised in the fun home, this funeral home, and that did make her kind of cavalier Mm -hmm. towards death. Right. I think it's interesting,
2: too, that she uses death as it intertwines through the entire book. And it's not just the father's death. Uh, We're talking about the death in literature. So she talks about those things so many times in comparison to her father and an author that he loved that died or uh, something that happens within the book that hits right on the head. Mm-hmm. Again, yes, and the origins of fun home or funeral home and her own understanding of death and mortality, which she had to grow up with at a very young yeah. age because she was face to face with death often, whether it's because she had to vacuum, you know, the actual mm-hmm. uh, funeral home or whether she was had to go and hand scissors to her father while he was embalming a body and the fact yep. that she didn't know if this was the test or not and so she made sure to be completely unemotional and without fear and she felt like that was something that she had to do in the face of death to prove to him that she was okay or that she was mm-hmm. worthy something along those lines so i feel like even though we do yes we definitely talk about grief and having to grieve over or not grieve over in the most normal as she will like to say and, and we would not categorize anything as normal but quote-unquote, normal
1: mm-hmm.
2: in her father's death, we see that she's had to confront it and to show a different reaction than what we would consider normal as a child, especially like, she has that confrontation of seeing the family that died so he said, she called it the the triple yeah. that came into it and one of them was a child her cousin, it turns out, I believe that was her age and he would just show her and like, this is his broken neck and just having to look and, and identifying like, yeah, there he is. And moving on without any fear, without any real emotions to it. So I find that interesting that she puts that as part of the uh, the string throughout the entire book. That, it, yes, we're talking about someone's specific death. But also there was yeah. death. Whether it's also death and identity. Whether we're talking mm-hmm. about her mom who had to give up so much. Or her dad who had to closet his own orientation or whatever, whatnot. It's kind of like, okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm,
1: it's here. Yeah. 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 And that is probably one of the biggest themes in the book as well, uh, which we're definitely gonna delve into more later, but of the almost preference for fiction um and living in a kind of absurdist world. And that fits that very well. And and just the idea, um, Allison's grandmother lives in the fun home and you know, if there's somebody living there that you know is not long for this world, perhaps. And it's just like those blurring line mm-hmm. of life and death. And then her dad went through this very after he died. Mm-hmm. He ended up being embalmed at his own the funeral home that he worked at. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of layers in that way. And then yes, there is this ambiguous nature of his death of did he kill himself if so why was it something he planned in advance and allison is always trying to find clues to find meaning in that like if he had underlined a sentence in a passage or uh, he was the same age as f scott fitzgerald plus or minus a couple of weeks when he died just like trying to find all these things to give it some sort of meaning because there was no note or anything. Right. He just got hit by a sunbeam bread yes. truck. <laughs> Which she made sure to point
2: out. I did find it interesting yes. when she brings out the narrative of seeing the snake uh, oh, when yeah, they went yeah, camping. Yeah. And then she mm-hmm. was like, maybe he saw a snake and he jumped back because that's what the uh, truck driver or the motorist said that he was across the road everything was, was fine and all of a sudden he jumps back. So mm-hmm. no one really knows because he was doing what he loved gardening, which is apparently something that he does almost impulsively throughout mm-hmm. her life. And she sees it, whether it's they're playing a game, he sees something wrong with the garden, so he must fix it immediately. And that's what he was doing. So it's kind mm-hmm. of interesting to hear her talk about that because like, maybe it really was an accident. Maybe it was the snake that scared uh, him, and we just don't know.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the pain, the the, the uncertainty. Not that either is necessarily better, but especially in terms of people... In this context, who love to give meaning or to you read these books, and they even if it is absurdist ultimately, which is a word I keep coming back to, but she uses it a lot throughout this, that it has weight. So you're always trying to find that mm-hmm. the story, the thread, and even the fact that it feels so strange to be talking about this because this is a real person. Right. And we're referring to her with her first name, but it's a real person, but it's also like a fictional almost a fictional world she created to make sense of all of this right (laughs) yeah so i did want to read a couple quotes maybe i'm trying to render my senseless personal loss meaningful by linking it however posthumously to a more coherent narrative a narrative of injustice sexual shame and fear of life considered expendable and i think that's a very human trait i think in my case, I always want to think about like horror movies. I think that's a very, you know, if I hadn't done this, then, or if this person hadn't done this, they'd still be alive today. And it feels like you're giving meaning to your choices that if you do the right things, you'll be fine. Or if you do the wrong things, and and these are in like heavy right or wrong quotes, but you know, like that then there's some sort of punishment that happens and that makes us feel better because it makes us feel like we have more control over things. Right. And then there's another story that her grandmother, Allison's grandmother, used to tell the children. And it was a story about her father being very young and getting stuck in the mud and not being able to get out and having to be rescued, uh, like pulled out by an older man. And after he dies and Allison is thinking she's hard for her to imagine him in the ground rotting, she says, stuck in the mud for good this time. Or she thinks that. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I do love that she she and her brothers love these stories because it makes her dad so human mm-hmm. and fallible as where, you know, the man that she sees at that point in time is seeking perfection in everything and everything must be beautiful and pristine. And so for her to imagine that he was a stuck be in mm-hmm. mud, see having to be unclothed and naked and being taken care of is such a whole mm-hmm. thing for her that she's like, what? And humanizing, mm-hmm. and that she just loves it as if it's a fairy tale.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, not to get too deep, but I feel like he, he was kind of stuck in the mud for most of his life. Right. Because he couldn't really move on or accept himself fully. Uh, and he really wanted to present this certain persona. And it made him and everyone else around him unhappy. So it was like being stuck. Right. And yeah, you mentioned about the
2: fact that about Fitzgerald and, and the parallels in his death, kind of the age and, and the upbringing and kind of that whole level, like his love for these books. Uh, I know Ulysses ended up being his most read, most loved book, but he also really absolutely loved... Fitzgerald's books and made sure to talk about it on a consistent basis. Apparently, I think that's how he, I won't say seduce, but seeks a long conversation with younger men is by mm-hmm. handing out Fitzgerald's books a, a lot of the times. But the fact is, like, she sees the similarity of like, he kind of wanted that life and he understood mm-hmm. that life of being hidden and wanting to become uh, someone different and being something so grandiose.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and uh, big. And I think she also talks about comparing him to Robert Redford in, from yeah. the movie when they saw it as a family. And they're like And Almost talking about it as if he made a little more sense when she mm-hmm. watched this movie. And I'm like, yeah, I could get that. hmm
1: <laughs> Yeah. So we did want to talk about the sexual orientation and coming out aspect of this too. Because yes, the damage of being closeted on both her father and the family... Is something that Allison uh, examines throughout, but also wondering if it would have been better or not if it was different. She recognizes she would not exist for one, or probably wouldn't, and speculated that maybe he wouldn't have lived much longer due to the AIDS epidemic, which you do see like on newspapers and stuff throughout, like news about that. Here's another quote. I suppose that a lifetime spent hiding one's erotic truth could have a cumulative renunciary effect. Sexual shame is in itself a kind of death. So, like you were talking about, Samantha, about the um, multiple layers of death in this book. And then when Allison does send the letter to her parents and then kind of gets this, not what she was expecting reaction, but also this bombshell revelation (laughs) to her about her dad. She has these feelings of being upstaged by this news and then his death and wondering if coming out to her parents caused it or was part of the cause of why he did it. Because she seems pretty convinced that he did take his own life. right? Uh, And still trying to put that, her experience into a cohesive narrative. Wondering if, the repression ultimately would have been better for her family and herself. After all, like because it's, and it's so kind of heartbreaking because when this happens, she's like, "Well, I hadn't really had sex with any a woman yet." Right. Like she's like questioning all of the stuff, which makes sense to in response to how they reacted, right to the news. Yeah, I did love
2: though as she talks about in later parts of the book and she does the hindsight of them spending time together and with the fact that her mother just kind of outright says well he's had affairs with young men before blah 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 so she starts asking and it was like oh so trying to probe at her dad and then the revelation about and we're gonna talk about gender roles in a second but like they they had a flipped idea of what they wanted and why Mm -hmm. this conflicted with each other so much and then also kind of explaining who he was and then through the love of books and the recommendation and showing themselves to each other without telling each other yeah. who they are like you see a lot of that unfolding and it is heartbreaking mm-hmm. as it becomes a point that they are actually communicating through their own yeah. special way it kind of still falls apart so it, it's mm-hmm. definitely a big part of that. And again, just like we were talking about, just trying to identify yeah. when she sees a delivery person and she, and she identifies with her because she's dressed as they would want to say, butch, uh, very, very masculine. And mm-hmm. she suddenly feels like she's not alone. But her father also realizes this. And that's kind of one of the big narratives. Again, at the look back, he keeps saying, Yeah, I kind of knew. Yeah, I kind of knew. Yeah, I mm-hmm. kind of was there. He witnesses this and realizes that she is going to have a really difficult life like him when he talks about the 50s in comparison to that day that she was present. And even then, it still wasn't easy. <laughs> we know mm-hmm. that the 80s, 90s were not easy. But for mm-hmm. him to be like, you know, the 50s, that wasn't even thought of. That was very looked down on. And just kind of that reminiscence with her when they talk about that moment of her when he asks, do you, you want to dress like her? Yeah. Is that who you want to be? And she's just like, uh, obviously yeah. my answer has to be no.
1: Yeah, you're like giving me no space for any other answer, but no. (laughs) Yeah, and she's pretty young at this point uh, when this happens. But like jumping way ahead, when her and her dad are trying to have a conversation after she's come out, they're going to the movies and they're having this really stilted conversation, which is beautifully illustrated. And I read like a breakdown of why it's so good because it makes you sit with every panel of silence. Mm -hmm. It did remind me of a recent topic we talked about, which is parentification, because Allison feels more like the parent in this exchange when her father finally starts to open up to her a little bit about his homosexuality. She's the one that's trying to like be supportive and feels like she can't share her experience, but wants to hear his. In that moment, he does seem very childlike and like he, he's never spoken out loud about this before, right. perhaps, or especially not with people in his family. Right. And so vulnerable. And then it shuts down very quickly and the conversation just fizzles out. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Honestly, her whole coming out and her parents' reaction, uh, I thought was interesting because her mother was upset and didn't want to talk to her, didn't want to even acknowledge what was happening. And I'm sure this may have triggered her in every way, just knowing what she was going through with her own husband. Uh, And the dad is like, great, experiment did you did you partake in <laughs> right. an orgy? like essentially, it was his reaction? Right. Just thinking yeah. it was not necessarily because he knows it's not just a stage, but that's how he's been seeing it in his mind, so mm-hmm. he will fulfill things in the dark so fulfill mm-hmm. his desires in the dark and in secret and hope it passes, but it never does, obviously, so he's wondering, right. is this what she's doing, or oh, you're having a you' you're experimenting like i I do great. Right. But that's not really. Are you really? It still was like questioning. I thought that was an interesting take as for the man like reacting for the way he reacts to himself, to her, who is obviously very open at this point. And I thought that was, again, really well put out by her. It was reality. It was what happened. The fact that, mm-hmm. you know, he had to be like, your mother's busy. She's kind of too upset to talk right now. She's still processing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It was still part of the reaction.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it, that's one of those situations where it kind of sucks just because yes, the, the mother is dealing with Helena has this pain from what she knows about her husband. So she that she is reacting that way and then yeah, Bruce is like very much reacting to how he thinks he is and then she, Allison, is kind of didn't know this was a thing, right? And was just like you know trying to come out and maybe the way she did it uh, had this kind of like vision of how it would go, and instead it kind of and you can't really blame everyone, but it kind of became a very selfish thing on right. everybody's right. part, right? Right? <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. I really did. Yeah, and I also think like we can't
1: go without mentioning
2: the fact that yeah, her dad's pathological tendencies—the the fact that he went for young boys and even soliciting with buying minors beer—and that was his only charge. With that whole oh, but we know, but we right. know why this is happening, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very sad because you you have so many aspects of feeling sorry for people and really understanding that this is a hard time, but at the same time you're like yeah, but we can't excuse this. Yeah. This is not a thing. And, and, she, and she kind of does the same thing of like, I'm not excusing this. This is what happens. We know what happened. Mm-hmm. We just don't talk about it. in kind of right. that way. But I'm, and she, I'm sure, I, I have no idea. I didn't read this. If she had any backlash from her family for revealing and saying out loud was, you know, yeah. what everybody's been keeping quiet. So it's kind of, oh, I wonder how that went down. Because when family secrets happen, it's not pretty but mm-hmm. it's also offensive for the victims or those who have been affected to ignore it as well and pretend like it never right. was a thing. And obviously it was a thing, as she would pinpoint each time when there was like, this dude <laughs> he helped us. <laughs> and she would always say things like, this dude helped us clean out the basement. This dude yeah. helped us with the c-. You know, they were all young students of his, which mm-hmm. we've talked about as many times. It's obviously a power play and it's inappropriate. So we can't ignore those conversations either, and though it is a black cloud in the family, she she didn't shy away from it
1: for sure. Yeah, yeah. And there's also that whole sequence where they're in New York and yeah. her younger brother, yeah, like goes not missing, but uh, it's just painted in a way where you're like, well, if this had gone differently, right? Like almost putting her father in that same box, but then he is fine with it, like. Once, it's, once the situation is resolved, he like goes out on the town. Right. But he is very aware yeah, of what can happen and who mm-hmm. can come after him. And it, it says, yeah, it definitely says a lot. Yeah. Yeah. My ex-boyfriend gave me this book of untranslatable words. And one of them in there translates to the family secret that everyone knows, but everyone refuses to talk about. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Which is, yeah, that's a great word. But that kind of yeah. reminds me. That kind of reminds me of this. Mm -hmm. We do have some more themes we want to discuss. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought
2: to you by Snagajob.
1: back. Thank you, sponsor. So yes, we did want to talk about gender roles in this book because we do see instances of dressing in gender non-conforming clothes. So Allison did that with a friend of hers where they were kind of playing dress up and her friend wanted to do something else. And she's like, no, this would be way more fun. (laughs) Let's, Let's dress up in men's clothes. And she asked her dad, to get her a measured shirt. And he said, like, we'll have to measure your appendages. Yes. Meaning breast. And she was like, okay, no, never mind. But yeah, uh, Allison felt like she needed to fill the space of masculinity her father didn't, while her father wanted to express femininity through her, putting them forever at, quote, cross purposes a war of cross purposes i think i do love the
2: scene in the car when they had that revelation and when yeah. she says, when i was younger i wanted to be in dresses i wanted to dress like a girl she was like i wanted to dress like a boy like you know, she, she says it so excitedly but then it goes yeah. quiet <laughs> right <laughs> <'Cause> the realization <laughs> comes down to because the realization comes down to the fact that yeah they were really at odds with each other because they mm-hmm. were envious of the other which but we also saw as Allison grows up. She is giving him advice on what kind of suit he needs to wear, what kind of things, vests that he needs to look mm-hmm. at. And he's like, "You're you're right," you know, understanding that that okay, yeah. At the same time, she's having the battle of not wanting to wear a stupid beret, but he mm-hmm. is insistent that she must throughout to the right. point that it becomes uh, physical. Uh, and she's mm-hmm. like, "Why? Why is this is dumb? I don't want it. I just want a crew cut." She literally <laughs> says, "I would rather have a crew cut." And I find that interesting. And and just that level of, it's not necessarily that they're trying to make sure that each of them have a defined gender, but that the fact that the other wished that they were that gender.
1: Yes. And I think there's a lot of shame there for him, Mm -hmm. of of himself, but also I do believe he really thought he was trying to protect her because he was afraid of how society would treat her if she didn't hide herself like he did. But also, there's a lot of instances of him living vicariously through her throughout. And one of the one of the scenes that sticks out in my head is when she's coloring, and as a kid, and she, he takes the coloring book and starts coloring in it because he's right. like, "I can do it. I can do it better." Right. And there's just a bunch of instances of that too. So you can definitely see like. Him trying to live through her and be feminine through her, but it's not what she wanted and it's not right. what she felt or who she was. And then there's Allison kind of observing her mom having to clean the house, cook the food, raise the kids. And especially when there's a scene where Allison and her mom are at a table and her mom is speaking to her as an adult for the first time. Right. And it's kind of like, I hate doing this stuff. Like, I hate cleaning this stupid house. It right. is his house. Like, I don't want to do it. Um And having that moment. I didn't want to live in this museum.
2: Yeah, says. exactly.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting because she, she, again, we know that at the same time, she was continuing on with her education and was having to defend her paper. And she's doing plays and, and she's trying to do all of these things. She's trying to be the supportive wife that goes to court with him. All of these different levels. But I also find it interesting at the beginning of the relationship with her uh, mother, Helen, and Bruce, that it becomes a little explosive. And she realizes what she's kind of getting into, even though at the beginning it was all poetry and love stories and all of these things, and calling her a crazy bitch when she didn't want to do something or question something or was confused about something or when he would go out and do things that was obviously against their marriage, as in he was having an affair. Right. No matter what gender, she was having an affair <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and bringing in different like types of heartaches to her that when she would get upset, that he would call her a crazy bitch. It was mentioned a few times uh, yeah. where she would just kind of give up and just mm-hmm. be like, okay, and just kind of do her own thing in her own world. And that included doing those plays that she loved mm-hmm. and doing it to her best, including memorizing everybody else's lines so she didn't flub one line at all.
1: Right. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to that—the whole fiction aspect that is in this of people choosing to live in these fiction worlds more than reality. And yeah, like you said, Samantha, that that broke my heart too when it described her. Allison described her picture as dull, like she mm-hmm. had just been dulled. Yeah, so much from like when they first got married to to several years later. But yeah, that was kind of one instance where it at least felt to me that Allison was observing this between her parents and was like, the the gender roles of her mom having to do this stuff didn't necessarily make sense. (laughs) click? And then just wanted to mention, uh, there is a whole segment of Allison getting her first period and trying so desperately to hide it. I do love her sayings
2: of trying to figure out when she needs to say it. She's like, not now. Not now. And even Mm -hmm. talking about the fact that as meticulous as she was and as factual as she was for her journaling and diary, she did not write it out or she used code Mm -hmm. through the entire time until she finally does. And her mom's reaction, but non-reaction, she talks about her mom starts shaking. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know. I didn't exactly know what that meant, but obviously it was a big deal enough that she was trying not to react, but she was reacting. And I found that super interesting, as well as the fact that asking her, are you cramping? Which I feel like, yeah, I think for her as a mother, she's just trying to find out if she's in pain.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And I was like, that makes sense. That makes sense because I had extensive amounts of pain from cramps and my mother Mm -hmm. understood it and tried to take care of me as much as she could. But yeah, that was her only reaction. Do you need more pads? Are you cramping?
1: Yep. (laughs) Yeah, which is kind of a anticlimactic because right. Allison had been hiding it. Had right. been Like this is going to be such a huge deal, which it is, but her mom was kind of like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to wrap this up with art because we've been talking about that art and how the fiction aspect and trying to find a, a narrative have been just present throughout this. There are so many literary references. F. Scott Fitzgerald, James Joyce, Marcel Proust, Kate Millett, The list goes on and on. And this is one thing I related a lot to, communicating with your dad through art. We weren't great at communicating, but we did love movies. He loved movies, and I loved movies, and he would send me movies when I was in college. Um, And that's what we would talk about, to a lesser extent, books. He was also extremely poetic and would do the same thing where he would underline things or he would quote things to me all the time. Which I in his relationship with my mom, he would write her poetry. It was very similar in that like very artistic and almost um presentation of here's my perfect family, and I'm not necessarily sure that's what he really wanted, but it's what he thought he wanted, and it's what he wanted to present to people. He he was very much similar in this whole kind of vein of quoting things and asking you to read things or see certain movies or uh, things like that. And I do think, I I don't know. I just really related to that. I really related to that whole thing where it's almost easier to build this fiction world or or to use this fiction world to try to have a conversation that might be difficult or that you don't feel certain in communicating with, with the other person.
2: Right. And uh, yeah, I think you're not the only one. People who feel disconnected from their parents find a common ground. And yeah, you're talking about living vicariously. One of the main things in college, one of the biggest things that that really helped them communicate was her taking classes with literature. Mm -hmm. And of course, having to actually take a class about Ulysses and having to sit and listen to her dad. Of course, she got to the point that she got tired of it. But the fact that they were living vicariously through each other to really mm-hmm. be in love with something or be able to discuss something or to be able to understand something in such depth and perception or maybe just to. Too much? You're like, come on, calm down. I did love her. She's like, calm down. I think you're okay. Then it later transfers as the Kate Millett. And the fact Mm -hmm. that her dad is like, oh my God. And doing the same thing. She talks about how he had left that book for her. And then the vice versa. She had left that book for him. And he Mm -hmm. is so enthralled and loving something new. Something brand new. And Mm -hmm. it is because of her knowing who he was through literature. And I think that was beautiful. That is their biggest connection. Also, her understanding of his death. Like, that's one of the biggest mm-hmm. ways that she was able to connect to his death. Whether it was by suicide or not, it was through literature. Like, the, whether she's underlining something or he's underlined something yeah. or he's loving a character. She has some kind of commonality with these books to connect to him and his death. And I think it is a very beautiful way of understanding him, especially if it's something that he loved. Like, it's the it's, yes. it's bigger point of like, it's not something that I love. It's something that he loved, and I found it. And of course, his whole library, the fact that he was able to give her 10,000 books, it was so mm-hmm. excited. And I get that way too. I don't know about you. When someone is interested in something I like and then starts yeah. asking me questions, I start pulling out references. Here you go. Do this. You need to do this. You need to look at this. I mean, mm-hmm. that kind of love and, and level of you're able to see me is, is a beautiful thing. And it's through this art. Of course, I don't think anyone understood his art and love up through his house. <laughs> that seemed like a point of contention for all yeah. of them, but she still right. understood what he was getting towards.
1: Yeah. And that is something you can understand something about someone based on, especially if they're really passionate about a certain character. Right. For my dad, my dad loved um, to kill a mockingbird and he loved Atticus Finch and he was a lawyer and he uh, represented people who couldn't afford to represent themselves. And, and, Just knowing that, like you know, something about that person. And it was kind of like funny and sad to me of the, the, where she went to college and she's like, I'll never take English again because her father was trying so hard to live vicariously through her. My dad was kind of the same, (laughs) but I, I, I was like, no, I'm never going to be a teacher. And so I I shut it down, I guess. (laughs) But (laughs) I, yeah, I connected with that as well. Um, Something else I did find interesting is, which we've been talking about, but I thought it was interesting that not only does this book examine memory and the failings of memory or how it can get recontextualized, it also talks about recontextualizing art and mistranslating art. Right. Um, there's a couple of examples she gives where she talks about like, I th- this is a mistranslation like from French to English or whatever. Are her father using Albert Camus and his thoughts on suicide, but ultimately the thoughts on suicide were, it's absurd. Right. Like choosing, picking and choosing and recontextualizing happening not only in memory and in our real lives, but also in the art that we do consume, which does inform our real lives, which I thought was really interesting. And then one of the things that I think we should come back and talk about later is the power of images, because um, that's not necessarily discussed in this, but it is a part by nature of it being a graphic novel, that's why most people, including Alison Bechtel, think this has been the target of so many banning and censorship efforts because it's... I think she says something like, I guarantee you there's more things in there that have way more gay sex than this, but this is illustrated and right. it's art and you can see it. Right. So that's why it made people so uncomfortable, which I think is uh, worth returning to in the future. And then I just... I did want to talk briefly, I mean, just a mention of this whole idea that's present of Daedalus and Icarus, Mm -hmm. of Icarus flying too close to the sun, but Allison is kind of constantly making comparison to that, but Allison's father was there to catch her in her memory of jumping off the diving board, which is, I thought, it was really sweet and well done, and uh, it makes her, you know, question, is there somebody to catch him? Right. Right. Or had he been like just all these years waiting. Right. But yeah, it was really touching. It It was.
2: Yeah. And and you know, she actually did talk about the fact that about the mistranslation and learning new things after the book was released. And she talked about the fact that she's like, oh, I was, you know, there's so many things that I'm like, oh, that makes more sense. And yeah, it would have changed that perspective of the book had I known these things, but I'm glad Mm -hmm. I didn't because it makes it more honest from me. But I I felt like that was such an interesting idea. It's like, there's so many things that we don't know behind pictures. You know, you and I have talked about this before, and I've talked about it with so many people recently, that we don't know what has happened through the generations of our families. We don't see the true stories. And oftentimes, because they're our parents or we're connected with them on an everyday basis, we don't think to ask. We just assume we know. And then Mm -hmm. when people start asking, and you're like, oh, I I didn't know that about you. What? It changes so much perspective later on. It could change the whole book in general, the whole novel in general too. So like I I wouldn't want to change that. But there's definitely new things that I have learned that I'm like, wow. You know, and I feel like that's something to note because of course, as we go into any kind of conversation about our own past and our family's past, there's so much that we miss out and how things get mistranslated or even just left out altogether. Mm-hmm. And I think
1: it makes it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you, you brought that up. I hadn't read that from her, but that is that is really interesting. Well, clearly a lot to talk about. Very highly recommend this book yes. if you have not read it. And as always, we love getting book recommendations from you listeners. You can send them to our email. It is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at stuff mom never told you or on Twitter at mom stuff podcast. Thanks as always to our super producer Christina. Thank you, and thanks to you for listening. Stuff mom never told you is production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.